0: All right. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be beginning a new sermon series, Um, and what we're going to be doing for a number of Sundays is talking about uh, D-list Bible characters. You guys know what I mean by D-listers. We live in a celebrity obsessed culture. When I lived in Southern California, did that for about ten years. My wife is from LA. One of the things that you do in California, Los Angeles area, is you look for celebrities. I remember one time at the Airport. Airports are a good place to see them because they can't avoid the common man, the unwashed masses. (laughs) They have to go to the terminal as well. They don't have a separate terminal for celebrities, so they have to go through TSA just like anybody else. And I remember once I was at the airport at LAX, and in comes Richard Simmons, you know, sweating to the oldies guy. (laughs) And I'm here to tell you His walking around outfit was just exactly like on sweating to the oldies. I mean, he had the armbands, the crazy hair, the, you know, short shorts. He was just, I don't think he was wearing short shorts, but he was wearing something with Sarah's nodding her head. It was short shorts. Uh, He was sparkly. I'll say that. I was like, that's Richard Simmons. And we actually had an interaction with Richard Simmons. It was really cool. Another time at an airport, I met Kramer from Seinfeld, Michael Richards. And that was really cool. Now, those are people that I just say the names and you picture them. You know who I'm talking about. Those are household names. And the Bible is full of household name kind of people too. Like, I don't have to give you a biography if I throw out the name Joseph. Most people who have grown up in the church have been a Christian for any length of time. You know Joseph's story to some extent. Or Noah. Or David. Peter. Paul. John the Baptist. Jesus. You know these names, and as soon as I say the name, you have a whole world of ideas to fill in the gaps. You can picture their stories. But what about Mephibosheth? No. What about Bezalel and Oholiab? No. (laughs) What about Demas? Maybe. Probably not. The Bible is full of people who are named... And who have stories to tell, but we don't spend much time on. We tend to spend more time on those A-listers. But the whole book is for our good and for God's glory. And all those names and their stories are given to us to instruct us and teach us. And so we're going to spend a few Sundays talking about some of the more obscure Bible characters. Now just to put you all at ease and make everybody uncomfortable, let me begin this morning by talking about Obamacare. (laughs) When I was in preaching class, they were like, just talk about something politically controversial to get everybody at ease, right? No. Now I'll I'll put you really at ease. I am going to talk about Obamacare a little bit, but I'm not making a political point. Trust me, okay? This is where you have to trust the pastor that I'm not swerving into a weird place. But do you remember back when Congress was debating the merits of Obamacare? And I really don't care if you liked it or didn't like it or whatever. But we all remember that season. It wasn't that long ago. It was a controversial time. There were a lot of strong opinions on both sides of the debate. And, of course, maybe even the controversy continues today. And it is probably a stupid and risky thing for me to even bring it up. (laughs) But I like dancing through minefields. So let's just do it. My... (laughs) My point is not to argue one way or another the merits of the thing, but to point out the amazing fact, amazing truly, that most, if not all of those who voted on it, and some voted for, some voted against, they all of them were guilty of this, probably never read it, right? Nancy Pelosi, who was then Speaker of the House, was lobbying hard for the passage of the bill at the time, but she had to confess when pressed by a reporter that she had never read the entire bill. She famously said, But we have to pass the bill so that you can find out what's in it. <laughs> in fact, most. Now, I, first of all, I have to re- respect and find refreshing the honesty of that statement, honestly. In fact, most of Congress was in the same boat. Some voted against it, some voted for it, but very few appeared to have even read it in its entirety. Later, when the Obamacare Affordable Care Act, as it's properly known, went before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court justices also didn't read it. In fact, Justice Stephen Breyer said to a lawyer arguing against the law, quote, so what do you propose that we do other than spend a year reading all this? And the late Justinus Antonin Scalia went went a step further. He erupted at a lawyer in open court who suggested that the justices might go through the bill and read it in order to decide which parts were unconstitutional. He said, what happened to the Eighth Amendment? Which is the amendment prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. (laughs) Scalia was clearly saying that reading the entire law would qualify as cruel and unusual punishment. Even Max Bacchus, a name we don't know, talking about obscure names probably, widely considered as the lead author of the, bill, of the bill confessed that he had never read the entire thing. Who knows? The president probably didn't even read it. And lots of people, voters, were upset, confused, they thought this was controversial that our lawmakers and justices voted on such an important piece of legislation without even reading it. Now this reminds me of my first day of my systematic theology course. The professor, this was years and years and years ago when I was first starting my formal bible training. The professor shared the alarming st- statistic that a majority of Christians in the United States have never read the Bible all the way through. They've cherry-picked. They've dropped in and out of passages. But they've never read Genesis to Revelation. He challenged us, if we had not already done so, to do that as a matter of first importance. He said if we were going to be teachers of the Bible, he said we should at least read the Bible. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Now, to my shame. I had never read Genesis to Revelation. I'd grown up in the church. I knew a lot about the Bible. I'd read books about the Bible all the way through. But I had never, up till that time, actually sat down and read through the entire Bible. Now that's to my shame. Here I was as a, somebody training to become a Bible <laughs> teacher, a pastor, in the absurd position that I had to admit that was describing me. Never done it. Well, I took his challenge. I decided, my goodness, I'm going to as a matter of first importance, just like he said, I'm going to read through the Bible. That's ridiculous. How have I gotten into this position? <laughs> and I've done it a couple times since. But you know, in America, the average house average household has over 4 Bibles under the roof. But according to studies conducted by the American Bible Society and Barna Research Group, a sizable majority of Americans read from their Bibles only four times a year or less. In fact, most Christians give their lives to Jesus, give their lives, and stake eternity to based on the teachings of a book they have never read for themselves. Fellow Christians, We should not point out the speck in Congress's eye without first acknowledging the log in our own. And there are bigger issues at stake in the Bible than in the Affordable Care Act. And thankfully, and this is tremendously good news, the Bible is much shorter. (laughs) And much, much more interesting than the Affordable Care Act. It's actually a pretty good read. Obamacare and its attached regulations are 1,527,165 words long. The Bible is only half that length. Some of you aren't readers, and that's okay. You know, in Jesus' day, most folks were not able to read at all. You know, the people who first received the New Testament, most of them couldn't read and write, period. Period. They heard the Word of God. That was how they took it in. And today, through marvelous technology, we can do the same. I always considered myself pretty knowledgeable when it came to the Bible, but when I took that professor's challenge and I set out to read through all 66 books of the Bible, I can remember being surprised at some of the stuff I found in there. I thought I had a pretty good handle on this thing. <laughs> But I came away from the book many times kind of going, God, what in the world was that? What do I do with that? I had to wrestle. There are stories in there that I guarantee you were never taught in junior church because it would be indecent to create a coloring sheet depicting it. There are whole chapters of the book that are hard to talk about in mixed company and that, frankly, pastors never do. Some of those stories really made an impression on me because of how they challenged me. They forced me out of the small, comfortable way of thinking that I had settled into. They were difficult. Guys, they were confusing. But like I always say, nobody who wrestles with God's word loses. Now, one of those stories that I happened upon as I read through the Bible was in Judges chapter 11. And it's the story of a man named Jephthah. You can turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 11 of the book of Judges. Uh, We're going to be spending most most of our time this week on the second half of that chapter, uh, verses 29 through the end of the chapter. Um, But but first we have to back up and just for the sake of context, talk a little bit about what comes before the controversial stuff at the end of the chapter. And really the context of the entire book. Uh, In Judges 21-25, if you've ever heard a sermon on judges ever, you've probably heard this verse. It says, There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the summary of this period of time among God's people in Israel. There's no king, and everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. This is a Wild West kind of a time in Israel's history. And there's no sheriff. <laughs> Everybody's a law unto themselves. This is a might makes right, rough kind of people, violent, immoral. It's scary. I think if we had gone there, we, we would want to get out of there as quickly as we can. This is a lawless time in the history of God's people. In verses 1 through 3, introduce us to Jephthah who would become one of Israel's judges, were told that his mom had been a prostitute, but that his dad, Gilead, had raised him in his household. It says, though, that later, after he had other children, his other children drove Jephthah out because he was the son of another woman. Incidentally, that translated from the original language is a much more, packs more punch, son of another woman, This is a very mean sort of thing to say to a human being. They drove him away because of his association with his immoral beginnings. And they say this in a very hurtful way. It says then that he goes out into the wilderness to a place called Tob. And he becomes a leader of a band of worthless fellows. Now, if a human being describes other human beings as worthless, we kind of think less of that person, right, <laughs> for describing in that way, but this is God's description of these men. He says they're worthless fellows, and the picture that's being painted for us of this crew living out in the wilderness of Tob that has gathered around Jephthah is just a band of ne'er-do-wells, the kind of guys where if you saw them, you definitely cross to the other side of the street. Maybe you just turn and run. Uh, these are beyond ruffians. Beyond rough around the edges, these are worthless fellows. Dangerous people. And they've kind of coalesced around Jephthah. Jephthah has become their leader. And I don't know what to make of a man who is a leader of worthless people, except that he's probably, to some extent, kind of like them. Verses 4 through 11 tell us that he is well, verse 1 tells us the first thing we're told about Jephthah really is that he's a mighty warrior. That's his profession, and he's really good at it. He has not excelled at much in life. He hasn't been dealt a good hand of cards, but I'll tell you what he's good at. He is good at killing people. He's really good at it. The mighty warrior. Now, his fo- the folks back home have a problem. The Ammonites are saber-rattling. And they're casting about for a leader. They don't know who can help them. They don't have a king. They don't have somebody who can kind of organize them and help them put up a defense against this existential threat, this menace of a neighboring kingdom. So they they go, well, what about Jephthah? He's amazing at killing people. (laughs) Let's go call him and his band of worthless fellows out of Tob. Maybe he can help us. But there's just one problem. We all remember how Jephthah exited Israel to begin with. You son of another woman. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. So now they get in the awkward position of having to go back to Jephthah and go, Just kidding. (laughs) We thought you were great. So they recall him, and and he says to them, Did you not hate me? And drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? They say they're going to make him their head. And basically their answer to that question is, uh, yeah, that's why we're calling you. We're in distress. They don't really beat around the bush. They say that your your assessment is correct, Jephthah. We did hate you. We did drive you out. And we're calling you now because we really need you. They offer to make him their head, their chief. And although Jephthah mentions God more than any of the other judges, it is interesting to note that the Lord, unlike those other judges, is not involved in personally selecting Jephthah as a judge as he did with the others. He doesn't speak in a dream. He doesn't send a prophet or in any way communicate with Jephthah. The Lord stands by silently as a desperate people select a qualified warrior as their leader in a time of war. This is a bit like when churches um, select a banker to be the church's treasurer, even if that person is not of high moral standing, right? We sometimes see this, oh well, you're a teacher, you're not very spiritually serious, but you're good at teaching children, you can be a Sunday school teacher. You know, there's different qualifications for biblical leadership than for leadership in the world. Jephthah ticks all the boxes of what they think they need according to their carnal wisdom, but God is not really part of this selection process. He's not on the search committee, and he's not really consulted here, and that's worth noting. In verses 12 through 28, Jephthah seeks to resolve the problem with the Ammonites diplomatically, peaceably. The Ammonites claim that the Israelites had taken their land, but Jephthah gives them a lengthy history lesson on the Israelite claim to the land. Now those, those poor Israelites, they have always lived in a rough neighborhood. But verse 28, the king of the Ammonites didn't listen to him. So that's where that's the context. That's what comes immediately before this, before we jump into verse 29 through verse 40. And I'm going to read those verses right now. Uh, we kind of just did a broad overview of the first half, but let me read to you the second half of the chapter. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Arorah to the neighborhood of Minnith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Kerimim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of the Lord. Then Jephthah Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord, Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me, leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains." And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel, forty that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. What do you do with that? (laughs) Did we just read in God's book, about a virgin being sacrificed in order to secure victory in battle. Mm. It's my experience that this story, by and large, is better known to critics of the Bible than to Christians. Uh, This is not a well-known story among Christians, but it is famous among atheists who are looking for any handy stick with which to beat the Bible. If you've ever dived into conversation with a committed atheist, or more than just a committed atheist, a a biblical critic, uh, they are sure to bring up this story and a few others that are difficult. They see in it a confirmation of their worst suspicions, that the Bible is an archaic relic from a more superstitious time, that the Bible is barbaric, it is backwards, It is even dangerous and immoral, and certainly not a reliable source of truth. After all, again, doesn't it depict this horrific human sacrifice? So let's set aside some time this morning for us to wrestle with this difficult text together, and hopefully as we explore it, God will make its meaning clear to us. I fall back in hope on the passages like 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17 that says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for rebuke reproof for correction for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. God has preserved this story in his word for his glory and for our good. Let me pray and ask God to guide us into it and help us understand what we're looking at here. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. You only do what's right. And Father, we confess that maybe as we dive into this story, there is an element of confusion. This confounds our expectations. We remember when Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham went to offer Isaac up, that you stayed his hand, you stopped him. We know in your word, God, that you say you hate child sacrifice. Father, what do we do with this story? Help us, Lord, to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 29, I think this is very critical to understanding what we're looking at in this this passage. In verse 29, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Uh, several years ago, I think it was the first year I was here as pastor, I was able to speak at family camp down at Camp Nomaca, which, by the way, I'm super excited. Camp Nomaca is going to be back up in operation this summer. They're going to be doing family camp. They're having meetings. It's going to be awesome. Looking forward. In fact, this is the 100th anniversary of family camp. Did you guys know that? That's what this year is. Pretty big deal. Now, I spoke on that occasion when I was uh, given the great privilege of speaking at family camp on Samson. We spent uh, several times together talking about Samson. And one of the things I pointed out is this phrase that occurs in the story of Samson and other judges in the book of Judges, where the Spirit of the Lord came upon that person. It's, It's a pattern just exactly what we saw growing up in the cartoons with Popeye. Remember Popeye? Popeye and Bluto would be duking it out. They'd be fighting. Bluto would be getting the better of Popeye. And right when he had Popeye down for the count, he would there was always for some reason a can of spinach there. <laughs> like, why did they have a can of spinach in the wood pile? I don't know. But there it is. And Popeye would suck the spinach in through his pipe and then his muscles like you know, and then you're and then what's gonna happen next? Bluto's gonna get it. You know it. It's formulaic. It never fails. Never does it work out any other way but that, which always raised the question for me. What if Bluto figured out about spinach? Oh, we'd be in big trouble. <laughs> Bluto is bad enough on his own, but Bluto on spinach, that would be messed up. But Popeye would get the spinach in him, and you knew Bluto was about to get it, and that's what always happens. So whenever we come to this phrase, in God's Word, specifically in the book of Judges, it's very common, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, rush upon him, whatever, We know what's going to happen next. It's in the bag. It's guaranteed. It's never anything but. But then something interesting happens in Jephthah that doesn't happen in any of the other accounts in the book of Judges. He makes a vow. This is weird. This is actually very strange. First of all, here are some other examples. Othniel, the spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, Reshet, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel. And Gideon, we're told that he was clothed in the spirit, and then he went on to defeat the Midianites. Samson, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat, over and over and over again with repetition. The Spirit comes upon him. It's a done deal. We learn in the Bible that for us believers, our victory has also been guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. You know the language in the Bible that when you become a Christian, you gain the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That language is very similar to what we're seeing here, and I'm telling you, it means it's in the bag. It's done. It's done. When God, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you as a believer, your victory over sin and death is absolutely sure. It is iron tight. It is sealed. It is promised. It is done. You can take it to the bank. In Ephesians 1:13 through 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Your victory is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came upon Jephthah, his victory over the Ammonites was also guaranteed. It was done. If God be before us, who can be against us? But look at what Jephthah does. His first response was to then make a vow to God. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, he says, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. A couple of things to note about this vow. The first thing is that it was entirely unnecessary. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. The victory's a done deal. Now all that Jephthah needs to do is to proceed trusting in God. But apparently, he felt like he needed to bring something extra. He needed to do something really big to impress God that he really, really wanted it this time. Something that would really seal the deal. And this reminds me of Christians today who don't trust God 100% for their salvation. They've been sealed by the Spirit, but they still feel like they have to do stuff for God to guarantee, guarantee their salvation through works. God said in his word, yeah, 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 yeah." I know, but man, I just really want to make sure. I really want to bring God something big. A second thing to note is that some Bible scholars argue that Jephthah did not intend a human sacrifice. But it seems obvious to me that he did intend a human sacrifice, or at least at a minimum he knew that a human sacrifice was one possibility when he made this vow. It is entirely possible that animals, even farm animals, may have lived with them in the house. But if he had intended an animal sacrifice, they would have just waited for the first animal to come out. No, I think he really wanted to impress God. So he promised the biggest, most precious sacrifice he could imagine, human life. And this reveals that Jephthah was ambitious. And that his view of God was a being who could be manipulated, bargained with. He wanted this victory really bad. Maybe through victory on the battlefield, he could gain the standing and acceptance among his family and his neighbors that he had craved since he was a child, growing up painfully conscious that he was the son of another woman. This vow, from top to bottom, I think mirrors perfectly the religious practices and attitudes of the pagan people in the cultures that surrounded Israel. These pagan peoples did not worship because they desired to serve God, but rather because it was their way of getting the gods to serve them. You want the gods to do something for you. You better sacrifice to them. And the bigger the thing you want the bigger the sacrifice needs to be. So Jephthah, on the eve of this battle, really wanting to seal the deal, I mean, he wants it desperately bad. He comes to God and he says, I will consecrate to you. I will burn as an offering the first thing that comes out of my house. Fully aware, I think, it could have been human or animal. Now, it's well documented that these nations surrounding Israel routinely practice that kind of sacrifice. In Leviticus 21 through 5, we read about how the Moabites would sacrifice even their children to the god Molech, and how God hated this practice. In Deuteronomy 12:31, we read, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Clear statement from God. Don't do that. And in a very revealing passage in Deuteronomy 18, God says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Very clear. Now, all of these passages were available to Jephthah. At least they were known among God's people. Deuteronomy comes before the period of Judges. This would have been something that God's people knew about. But he was apparently ignorant of them. Very strongly worded commands of the Lord. Jephthah just seemingly ignores. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 18 says, You shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. But here we find Jephthah doing just like the surrounding people did in worship to their pagan gods. When we look at Jephthah's vow, we see that although he has a true faith in the God of Israel, he has been shaped more by the culture in which he lives than by the word of God. He seems woefully ignorant of some aspects of God's character and what he has commanded in his word. We might call this theological ignorance, and it is very destructive. He's worshiping the right God in the wrong way. That's what's happening here. That's what I think we're looking at and reading. Jephthah is a cautionary tale about the price to be paid when God's people do not possess a knowledge of what God has said in his word. I go back to my systematic theology professor, which, by the way, is not something just for pastors. It's especially scandalous if I, as a pastor, have never read the book that I teach. That's not good. (laughs) And so I did. I fixed that. I've read it a couple times. But pastors are not in a separate category from Christians generally, not really. All Christians are called to be people of the book. All Christians need to be familiar with God's word. We live in an age not of gurus in the church. I'm not paid to be a super professional Christian. I am just like you. I belong to the priesthood of all believers. We all have different gifts, different roles to play in the body, but we are all just parts of the body. But one thing is for sure, we all need to be Bible-shaped. And in order for that to happen, we have to be committed to the book that we say we follow. And the only way to do that is to read that book. Maybe if you're not a reader, get it on MP3. Get it on your iPad, whatever. Listen to it but go through it. Now here we come to the results of the vow. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Boy, what a tragic, tragic sentence. I can't can't even get my uh, heart or my mind around this actually playing out. It's shocking, hard to read. Some say she was consecrated to the Lord as a lifelong virgin. I think the text is clear, though, that she gave herself willingly, albeit misguidedly, as a sacrifice for the nation and for her father's career. And how many parents, how many pastors, sacrifice their children on the altar of their careers? I don't think Jephthah is that strange when we see People doing a slow-motion sacrifice of their children in so many different ways. The cobbler's children go barefoot. Gilead neglected Jephthah. He certainly didn't have a good example of a dad. His dad allowed him to be driven out, sacrificed for his own pleasure, the peace of his own home. And here Jephthah is repeating the same cycle, essentially, Gilead did not take a hand in training up Jephthah in God's word. He was failed in his upbringing to be raised in an awareness of who God was and what his word contained. Now, Christians are supposed to be different from the culture. We're called to be holy as God is holy, which means that although we live in the world and engage with the world, we remain separate and distinct from it a people within a people. But it is always disastrous when worldly ways and attitudes permeate the church and corrupt our worship. Jephthah is, again, a cautionary tale about the dangers of being ignorant of what God has said in his word. This led Jephthah to worship the right God, but in a horribly wrong way. And we see this playing out in our own times, for example, in the the rise of the prosperity gospel, uh, which I think is just an abomination on the church. It's a horrible misrepresentation of the God of the Bible. But it's something that a lot has a lot of adherence. People buy into it. Why? I put it out there that I, it's Jephthah all over again. They're calling on the name of Jesus. They're worshiping the right God, but they're doing it in the wrong way. With a wrong understanding of who the God is. And this is a direct result of people not being familiar with the God of the Bible. The truths that have been entrusted to us as Christians are the most precious and needed truths on the planet. And if we simply content ourselves with a simple faith that is not coupled with maturity in God's word, we will find ourselves, like Jephthah, being shaped more by the culture than by God's word. As Christians were called to be students of the book. In Hebrews 5, it says this For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now in our own country, American culture and also the American church is experiencing today an astonishing level of theological ignorance. Not only have we as a people strayed completely from a biblical worldview in the United States, the dominant worldview in the United States today is humanism. But the church is also becoming permeated with some really bad ideas. I'm really convinced of this, and I think we see it all around us. Mainstream denominations embracing sin, uh, seemingly confused about what's good and what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, even if there is such a category as sin. Theology matters. And what we are seeing is that even Christians today are being more shaped by the culture than by the word of God. And the challenge is this, what about us? What about Josh Tate? Am I giving God's word access to my heart and mind? Have I read this book? Am I familiar with the God of this book? The only place to meet him is in his word. And so the challenge for us is to be people of the book, read this Bible, come to meet him there. So that's challenge number one, and then I promised I was going to bring this around to Mother's Day. And I, I, this is a strange passage to preach on on Mother's Day. I didn't really make Mother's Day the focus of our morning together. But there is something in here, I think, for us as parents, and specifically for mothers today. The mother in this story only gets very, very little press, and everything in there is negative. She's a prostitute. She's that other woman, which is a very cleaned-up version of what they actually said. Uh, Something I want to point out to you is this, though. Uh, In Proverbs 1, I think this is a passage that's very familiar and very commonly preached on Mother's Day, Solomon writes this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Two things I want to see in here that I think have direct application to what we just saw in the story of Jephthah. Solomon, when he's describing the home, the family, he describes it as a school. Uh, He says, do not forsake your mother's teaching or your father's instruction. So moms, dads, I'm going to tell you something right now. You're teachers. Your home is a school. There are little ones being raised, and they have more transient influences in their life But the broader current of influence in their life is you. And the way that they come to understand God, the way that they come to see the world and themselves are going to be powerfully shaped by what you impart to them. This is God's design. The home is a school, father's instruction and mother's teaching. Solomon says, don't forsake it. Jephthah was failed in his school. Uh, When we lived in Florida, I don't know if Maine has grades for their schools, but when we lived in Florida, one of the schools we were at was, I think it was like an F school. (laughs) It wasn't great. But that was a school that, according to the state, wasn't meeting the standards. And I think that one of the things that we can see about Jephthah's home, this is an F school. His dad, Gilead, what did he teach his son? That children can be sacrificed if they get in the way. If... Children can be laid on the altar, driven out in the pursuit of something that you deem to be higher and greater. Jephthah internalized that and repeated it. His mother was a woman. All we're told about her was something about her vocation, her way of living. Not a good lesson there either. But here's the other thing we learn from Solomon. When he says... Don't forsake your mother's teaching or your father's instruction. Who were his mom and dad? Well, His dad was David, of course. But who was Solomon's mom? Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba had Solomon. (laughs) The plot thickens, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, some of you might be thinking right now, that I'm not like a great mom or I'm not a great dad. I have blown it so many times. And my kids know it. They've had a front row seat to so many of my failings you know, for example, when Paul writes Timothy, he says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure it's in you as well. And then later on in chapter 3, he praises those two women for the powerful way that they in their righteousness have shaped Timothy. And we read that and we go, but I'm not a Eunice. <laughs> I'm not at all like that. I've blown it more often than I've been a good example And I want you to hear this loud and clear, very loud and clear. Some of you are all thinking right now, I'm not like Timothy's mother or grandmother. Maybe you feel like you've blown it in some pretty significant ways. You've modeled some really bad things to your children, and you're painfully aware of it. You know your kids know about it. Take heart and consider who Solomon's parents were. David and Bathsheba. Uh, A more scandalous story in Scripture can hardly be found. When you've blown it, own it. And in this, honestly, you will point your children to something far better than an illusion of your moral perfection. Because in owning your sins, in confessing them to your children, You will point them to Christ and not exalt your own goodness. We need to point our kids to the one who is good. We need to point them to the perfect righteousness of Christ. I have never met a mother who felt they had done their work as a mom perfectly. I mean, the only mom I know who did a perfect job was mine. Right? I think most moms, more than fathers, not always, but generally, I think this is generally true, most moms carry with them concerns that they have failed their children in some way. And moms, I invite you to claim for yourselves what Paul proclaimed in Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your kids do not need to see in you a perfect model of obedience and moral virtue. They need to see in you someone who is needy before the cross of Christ. Your calling as a mother is to serve as a living reminder of Christ to your children, so let them know that you are deeply imperfect. Let them know that you have placed all your hope on Christ and that that is all of your hope for your children. I say be honest with children about your failings. Don't justify them. Don't make excuses. Call sin what it is. And let them know that your hope, your treasure, is Jesus, not in maintaining the illusion that you've got it all together. I think this is something parents, Christian parents, really need to hear because your house is a school, and what are you teaching them by trying to maintain appearances if that is not, in fact, the reality of things? It's not lost on them. Children are very intuitive. I say just come out, confess what needs to be confessed, and talk about your need for Jesus There is nothing more important you can teach in the school of your home. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Jephthah is maybe someone that we were not terribly familiar going into this time. But God, I feel like I'm leaving with a better handle on this man. And God, he is, like all of us, a bit of a mixed bag. We can uh, see in him some admirable qualities And some some clear blunders as well. Father, I'm coming away with a couple of things personally that I just want to talk to you about at the end of this time. God, I have not been as dedicated to your book as maybe I should be. I do not often give it as the kind of time it should give in the course of my day. Sometimes it's rushed. Sometimes it fails to happen altogether. And Father, I see in the story of Jephthah that the current of the culture is always pulling my heart away from you, and unless I swim, I fight, I strive, I get into the Bible, I'm going to be swept away in it, into horrible error. And so, Father, I pray for me and for my friends here in this room that you would, by the Holy Spirit, Help us to recommit to being people of the book, spending time daily in your word. Father, maybe there's someone here who's been a Christian for a long time who has given their life to Jesus and staked eternity on the book that they have never read all the way through. Father, I pray, Lord, that they would fix that right now as a matter of first importance. And Father, there's moms here today, too, and dads, but on this Mother's Day, I'm especially mindful of moms who feel a tremendous burden to have it all together in front of their kids, to maintain an image of responsibility and moral virtue, and their heart recoils at the thought of confessing sin to their children. Father, I pray Lord that you would make them aware this morning in a strong way by your holy spirit that their home is a school. And that as a matter of first importance, the first thing that needs to be taught in that school is about our need and dependence on the perfect righteousness of Christ. That they're raising people who with a sin nature who need to be taught a pattern of confession and repentance. Father, I'm so grateful that you, rem- that you remember we're, that we are made of dust. Father, sometimes in parenting, we feel the weight of it all, the responsibility, the horrible sense, God, that these precious little ones have been given to us to shape and mold, and Father, that is sobering. But God, I'm so grateful to think that you don't ask us to be perfect. You ask us to point our children to the one who is perfect. So Father, I pray that you would help moms and dads to live as a living reminder of Jesus. To to live in an upright way, but when we blow it, to own it. To point our kids to the one who is perfect, not to our own perfection. Father, I'm so grateful for mothers, grateful for my mom, I'm grateful for the mother of my children. And Father, I pray that you would sustain them and give them strength in the midst of that calling. In Jesus' name, amen.